This is John Drabinski, and you're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. This discussion is with Shanna Green Benjamin, who teaches in the Department of African American Studies at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. She has published widely in African American literary and cultural studies, with particular emphasis on black women's literature and intellectual history. Along with numerous articles, she recently published Half in Shadow, The Life and Legacy of Nellie Y. McKay, out with the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. The book was awarded honorable mention for the William Sanders Scarborough Prize from the Modern Language Association in 2022, and it is the occasion for our conversation today. In this conversation, we discuss the origins of the project, the mixed genre presentation of McKay's life, the organizing principles behind the book's reckoning with archival materials, and the importance of placing Nellie Y. McKay at the heart of African-American literary and cultural production. Shanna, hello. How are you today? Hi, John. I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's really good to have you uh, here. I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk about your book. I uh, will say at the outset, uh, I really love this book. Um, it's beautifully written. And I think one of the things I do want to get into in our conversation is, is the kind of book it is. Um, I just, I really love the style you wrote it in. Um, and, uh, that sort of merging of biography, autobiography, literary aspects, you know, uh, historical aspects. Um, but I loved reading it and I will say this, and this is for me, one of, I think one of the most important things about the book is I just learned so much from it. And we often don't talk about books that way as scholars, um, cause we always want to like have a take, but I just <laughs> learned so much from this book. And I think that's one of the aims of the book is really to get us to learn so much about this critical figure. And, and I really did. I, I love that. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for that. And I imagine it was also uh, no small bit of a labor of love. You know, that definitely comes out in the book. Yes, and, yes, yes. And so in that sort of vein, I wanted to start off uh, by sort of inviting you to narrate us into the project. You know, I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about why this project, you know, where did it come from? What sorts of ethical, personal political, cultural concerns motivated the project? Because, you know, any book project, and I think especially this kind of book project, requires just so much uh, energy, right, and commitment. I, I mean, you have to put so much of your life aside. So something motivates us existentially uh, when we write these, when we write any book. But I imagine this kind of book, especially given, you know, you really built it from the ground up. So I want to just invite you to sort of talk about where the project came from and, and what sustained you and motivated you. Yeah, um, thank you for that. I, I, I think I'm going to wrap my answer up in what you were talking about at the outset, I think, regarding how it was written mm -hmm. um, and um, the voice and the audience. Mm -hmm. So 
I was Nellie McKay's graduate student. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison from Johnson C. Smith University, which is a historically Black college in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I worked with Nellie, who I would not have called Nellie to her face, by the way. So <laughs> yeah. um, I'm calling her Nellie here and and now and in this context. But um, so I worked with her as a graduate student in African-American studies. And in the process, you know, I just I, I got to know her the way that most students do, which is, you know, based on my needs, I'd go to her and need help with this or help with that. But it wasn't until she passed um, in 2006 and we learned all of these details about her life that we didn't have access to that mm-hmm. I was just filled with questions because it's at that moment that you look back and there's this whole there's this whole moment where you imagine, well, what was the nature of our relationship, um, when we engage with one another, I mean, how genuine and real you, I mean, you start to question and second guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to understand her choices because I came from a very different generation of scholars. And at the same time, I wanted to understand her choices. I also needed to understand how I came to have the choices that I had inherited based on or because of her sacrifice. So um, it began with wanting to know why she made the choices she did. Oh, and and let me just go ahead and spoiler alert. Um, you know, what I learned was that she had not only shaved about a decade off of her life. So we thought um, that she was probably in her mid sixties at her passing, um, when in fact she was 10 years older than we thought she was. Um, she had once been married and had been divorced and was also a single mother of two. And she introduced to everyone in the professoriate. Um, she introduced her daughter to everyone as her sister. So it was all of those revelations um, Mm -hmm. that prompted me to go back and to ask why, but to also in the process kind of trace my intellectual genealogy. So when I was writing it, I was writing it for a generation of scholars who may not know her Mm -hmm. and who may not understand the nature of that sacrifice what we have come to inherit in Black literary studies and Black studies and women and gender studies. And so I think that I was imagining this as a book that would allow me to learn at the same time it would allow me to teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that mention of the of the generational difference, you know, you said, you know, you have a very different generation. Um I actually just wanted to ask you to maybe say a couple of things about how you understand. It. I mean, you, you in yeah. some ways answered that, but but I think these generational differences and, and seeing them and, and understanding why they're important is is so crucial. Absolutely, absolutely. So McKay was a graduate student. She earned her bachelor's 
um, from Queens College in New York in the 1960s and went on to Harvard for graduate school um, in 1969. And at the time that she entered uh, Harvard, it was during a time where, you know, you have the women's movement, you have the war in Vietnam, you have Black power, you have the rise of Black studies, you have student protests, you have folks taking over buildings. I mean, you have all of this going on. And so while she's entering graduate school, she's imagining herself as someone who's going to be a Shakespearean, perhaps. Mm. Um, but then she's faced with this kind of reckoning and realizes that she wants her academic work to serve a larger purpose. And so she's part of this group of Black scholars who are not only integrating graduate programs at predominantly white institutions, but they are also going to be um, some of the first to integrate predominantly white institutions just as faculty members. Mm-hmm. sometimes through Black studies, sometimes through English departments, through history departments. And so when she entered graduate school and when she had her first job at the University of Wisconsin, which was the only place she ever taught, Black African-American literature didn't exist as yeah. a discipline. I mean, people might have taught Black texts, but there was no Norton anthology. There was no kind of comprehensive study of Black literature um, from beginnings to the present in the way that it might mm-hmm. show up in a survey class. There would certainly not have been um, early on the codification of, say, a Black women's writers course. Mm-hmm. But between McKay, between um, Alice Walker, who is credited with teaching the first course on Black women writers when she was at Wellesley, you have this generation of scholars that's really reclaiming Black literature, Black women's literature, in the case of McKay and um, her contemporaries, Black women's literature. And they're reclaiming it by finding it in um, in the card catalog and the archive they are teaching it, they are writing about it, and that's prompting that material to be reissued and put in print and made available to a wider audience. So the kind of, um, the kind of foundational work that they did to provide the, um, in some ways, the raw material for the work that um, later 20th century and 21st century scholars, um, the work that we're doing in and around Black studies, Black literary studies, they showed us how to get it done. They established these um, fields of study, the lines that we have, um, you know, when you think about job searches, there weren't yeah. lines in African-American literature, and mm-hmm. there are now because of the work of that generation. So there's that field forming work that I think she and others are responsible for that really characterizes, um, in my mind, the work of her generation. It's, it's interesting listening to you, to you talk about that. I mean, it reminds me not to, to turn it about me, but um, I remember when I was at Amherst College in the Black Studies Department, um, Sonia Sanchez was a former chair of the department and uh, she was on campus at a film screening, and I was chatting with her at, at, 
you know, completely starry eyed. I love Sonia Sanchez. And, you know, I said some version of, you know, you know, we really in the department really appreciate the kind of work that you did, like building up that department. And I remember her saying, you know, she said, you know, you're welcome or something like that. And she said, called me young man, which <laughs> I'm not young, <laughs> uh, but I appreciated that. She said, young man, you can never understand what it meant to try to create poetry when you were a sociological specimen. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you know, mm. as long as we get to stop being sociological specimen and get to be read as writers. Right. And it was really interesting. I was, you know, thinking about, you know, just putting together, you know, a Norton anthology of African-American mm-hmm. literature, mm-hmm. right, as creating not only an audience of readers, but an audience of scholars. Like, yeah. these figures who make these moments possible. Um, that's what I, I mean, I, that's why I asked about that, because I wanted to hear you talk about it. That's what I loved about the book, is really getting inside what what it's like to be a person in that moment. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's no overstating the kind of, um, I mean, you know, the machinations, the strategizing, all of the ways that different scholars decided, okay, this is how I am going to contribute to the field. There were some who, um, like McKay, like Gates, um, and like their... um, the members of the editorial board of the Norton who thought about anthologizing as something that was really important because it would be a teaching resource for students. Um, Trudier Harris, when I talked to her, she discussed the importance of getting the scholarship out there. Um, so doing the work, doing the um, close readings mm-hmm. that would provide folks access to a new way of understanding Black literature. Um, you have people who are doing the theorizing by writing their um, by producing scholarship um, and providing these different kinds of critical readings. Um, so I think that between those kinds of activities and then the mentoring, the ways that these pipelines and pathways were created between institutions, um, yeah, I, I, I think that it was a really complex network, much more complex than I understood or realized or appreciated before I took on the project. Yeah, and it's a really undertold Mm-hmm. moment, you know, but it's a moment in for those of us who work in in Africana studies and any kind of field. I mean, we we only exist as a field and as scholars because of this. It's it's a it's a a, a funky like moment of of forgetting mm-hmm. that I think this book really does such a a good job of of rectifying you know, yeah. in one figure. And I like that it's one figure. It's not sort of the origins of the study right. of black of African-American <laughs> literature, which is an interesting book, but it's like, no, these things are about people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the work that we do in my mind is embodied anyway. And so to try to separate it from the person who's sitting down with the book, who is, um, you know, putting those words on the page, the filter that we bring as individuals to the classroom, to our scholarship. I just think that it was useful for me to narrow the scope a little bit. It helped me to get a hold and to not try to tell 
um, too many stories all at once. At the same time, mm. I wanted to acknowledge that the work was collective um, and that McKay worked alongside, you know, um, Francis Foster and Nell Painter and June Jordan and others to get the work done. Let me um, ask you about the title. The subtitle, I think, is self-explanatory, The Life and Legacy of, of Nellie McKay. Uh, by the way, I love the cover. When the, post, when the podcast is posted, um, people will be able to see the cover of the book if they don't already have it. It's a beautiful cover. I love the photograph. I like it moves <laughs> off the page, um, which reflects the title, right? Right. Half in Shadow. And I wanted to ask you about that title, you know, why that title, uh, where it came from, and what you think it helps us see about the book. Yeah. So, you know, I thought about, this goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, when I was reflecting on what I knew, what I thought I knew, what I realized I didn't know mm-hmm. about my mentor. Um, and Half in Shadow captured the way that she was able to control and manipulate her personal narrative, um, information about her personal life, so that it would never impede um, her professional aspirations. So she was diligent and she was... um, she she took great care to make sure that she kept those details of her life hidden from view. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, she would talk about her daughter, Pat, but she would always frame it in terms of her sister. So instead of, you know, an outing with her daughter and her grandson, it would be, um, you know, she was out at the Mustard Museum or antiquing with her sister and her nephew. So she would still incorporate, you know, it's just, you know, only the names have been changed sort of thing. Uh, yeah. um, so she would still talk about those people who were important to her. Um, mm-hmm. But she just kind of kept part of it in shadow. And so I found that whole process of being in control of her narrative. Um, you know, Darlene Clark Heim might talk about it in terms of dissemblance, right? So uh-huh. having the appearance of um, openness and this disclosure while actually being an enigma. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it says a lot about the work of Black women in the academy and the feeling that, um, you know, you talked about being a specimen but also understanding that if you are in this space and you're othered in a very particular way, that you need to hold on something, you need to hold on to something for yourself. Uh, And uh um, there are lots of ways that that gets done in terms of protecting our personal spaces. But for McKay, it was about creating a different sort of life narrative that Mm -hmm. made that really made her professional trajectory almost inevitable. So she wanted to be able to inherit this career and this profession in a way that her immigrant status, um, that her early years um, in New York City, that that would not have placed a limit or a ceiling on what she was able to do. And she didn't want that to get in the way of how people thought about what she could accomplish. So she just Mm -hmm. kept that part in shadow. And so that was why um, I gave it the title. But I'll say I can't take credit for the way that the the image was constructed on the page, um, on the cover that is. I loved it. 
um, once they, you know, once I got the mock-up, I thought it was just fantastic. The picture, I'll add this little tidbit about the picture. Um, I knew that picture had to be on the cover. Mm-hmm. And at the time I snapped that picture and added it to my photos on my computer, McKay's papers had not been processed. So oh. I need, and then COVID hit. So I couldn't go back to the archive. So oh, I'm wow. begging the archivist. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, I'm saying, I know it's there. It has to be between this and that. And, you know, the folks at UW Madison were really, really helpful. Um, and they went, into the folders, into the box, into the folders and sifted through and found that, found that picture for me because I thought it was important to show her in a way that we haven't seen her. And that's a picture that, um, appears to be from, um, her time in Jamaica at some point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful photograph and just, it's a, uh, you know, credit to the to the design people at the press because right I, I think it's just really like well placed on the cover. Right, these things matter. I, yeah. I really think yeah. you know, especially when you're trying to write a book. Not trying to when you write a book that wants to to elevate this person's story. I think the cover becomes especially important, and the way it connects, you know, and, I, and to the title, and, and and I'm I'm glad to hear you talk about the title because. I, I think titles are interesting, mm-hmm. but also the way that half in shadow is not just a political commentary about like her in the academy, but mm-hmm. also about her own construction of her life. So yeah. it, it resonates b- more broadly than just this, not just, but the professional, you know, sort of the way you work half in shadow when you work on the margins of the academy or inventing a field and so yes. forth. Yes, 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 absolutely. That too. So, um, let me also ask you about putting the book together. I mean, you know, this is a, a form of, of uh, a project and a form of writing that is not familiar to me. So I'm asking this as much personally, but also I think it's an interesting story about books. But this is a book that's built from the ground up, right? That you had this expanse of materials, right, in terms of archive and documentation of McKay's life, but also your own. Uh, relationship and your your place in relation to those materials and to the mentor, the person as mentor. So I, I just, when I imagine that, it's just this overwhelming amount of material, but mm-hmm. you have to organize it because the book is extremely coherent, mm-hmm. right? And not coherent, <laughs> rhetorical, but coherent in the sense yeah. that it yeah. tells like a really tight story. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you how how you went about organizing what must have been just this massive set of both thoughts and materials and assembling it, organizing it and making it into a project, right? The ethical, theoretical, historical kinds of concerns that organized. Yeah. 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 So I didn't know what I was doing at the beginning either. And I didn't really know what I had gotten myself into. Mm. Um, so, At first, I thought I needed to be organized in order to write it. Mm -hmm. And I kept kind of shuffling stacks of papers and creating outlines and um, trying to develop these conceptual nodes and, you know, all this stuff. And that wasn't getting me anywhere. And then I sat down with a friend of mine and I told her, Carla, Carla Erickson at Grinnell, she's a sociologist. 
And I told, I said, Carla, I'm having a really hard time getting going. And she and I talked about audience and she said, you know, what's helped me and what Keisha Scott, who's also a sociologist, um, she is, she was teaching at Grinnell at the time, but has since retired um, or gone on senior faculty status there. She encouraged Carla, who encouraged me to mm-hmm. visualize somebody that I was writing to, mm. that I had a very, very specific audience um, and to think about the needs of that person and to use to to adopt a voice that would be appealing to that individual. So Ashanti Reese, who's an anthropologist um, and who does black food studies. I love Ashanti, by the way. Don't you? Me too. Me too. I hope she listens to this. She is beloved by so many. She is amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I ran into her at this UNCF Mellon conference and I just, I knew that I was writing to her. I knew that I was writing to someone who wasn't exactly my peer, um, who was coming, who had entered the academy a little later than I did. I was thinking about a future. Um, But I started to write based on everything that I had read by telling myself the story first. Hmm. So So I ended up writing in these layers. And so when it comes to organizing, I organized as I went along. So I would immerse Mm. myself and then write and then identify areas that needed either enhancement or detail. And then Mm. I would use the research process to problem solve. So then I would read more and immerse. And then I would develop a scene based on what I read. And then I would read aloud and edit and identify, you know, more of the layers. So after I told myself the story, I thought about um, how I would contextualize. I thought about how I would bring in interviews. I thought about how I would bring in scholarship and articles that had already been published about the field. Um, so I would just use this layering technique to build and enhance the storyline. And then I also really, I, I mean, I, I relied on my colleagues to provide feedback and to let me know where the story worked and where it didn't. And um, at one at one point when I was reading aloud with some colleagues from Grinnell, Keisha Scott, she said, where are you? Where are you in this? You're you're not here. And this is before I decided to add the the autobiographical elements. So um, it was based on her feedback that I be you know that I decided to add that. Um, and so it was a process. It was an iterative process where I would add as needed, and um, it was in the writing of the biography that I ultimately learned how to do it. That's fantastic. I, that's amazing. I, I'm glad I asked. Uh, you know that that level of collaboration and and feedback. I mean, that's just it's really the scholar dream. You know, in terms of you know what we what we always hope to provide for for our friends and colleagues and want from them. I, I love hearing how that worked because it's a really unique 
book. You know, it's not the kind of book that most graduate programs train you to do. (laughs) Yeah. Figuring out. That's why I wanted to ask. I, I, you know, I read the book and I read so many books that I'm like, I can see how you write this book. Mm -hmm. This was one of those books. I was like, how do you actually write this book? How do you organize this material? And so, uh, you know, I wanted to hear and and I love the, the, that level of collaboration and Mm -hmm. uh, feedback. Mm -hmm. And let me add also, um, you know, you asked about um, how I assembled it, but also, my selection process. Yeah. And so I decided that this was not going to be a tell all <laughs> that I wasn't going to get into the weeds mm. about um, her personal life, her romantic life, um, which I allude to in either um, I allude to it at the very beginning of the book, but I knew that I wanted the focus to be on her life, her impact on me, her contributions to the field, and her impact on others. Mm-hmm. And so I selected um, I selected letters between um, McKay and Painter that would help to paint a picture of the time. So mm-hmm. I knew that there were moments that I mean, I I couldn't narrate through the history. It was easier to narrate through the correspondence, you know, their conversations about Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas and such. And so I just selected um, the ephemera. I selected the primary source material that I thought was going to give the reader the richest experience um, Mm -hmm. and to describe it in a way that I knew I couldn't. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I, I like those, I like that, that kind of selection, you know, I, I, I can imagine the, you know, maybe not the temptation, but some sort of pressure from precedent to, to get deeply in the weeds of the personal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because you avoided that, we just really do get such a, a robust picture of her as an actor and intellectual, uh, yeah. which uh, you know that was the aim of the book, and it absolutely does that. But you know th- those sorts of these sort of bio- biographically infused projects—they uh, really have so much. I imagine so much pressure to get deeply personal into the mm-hmm. personal life, right? And and it's definitely personal. You know, it gets inside the person. But um, what I got from it as a reader was nothing on the level of sort of gossip or or juicy right but instead you know what it what this person was who played this really formative role that we don't really talk about very much so yeah i like that yeah. that, that that method of organizing in, in that way let me ask you about the you know you've you've talked about so what what went into to arranging the materials and and organizing them and and decisions uh made in terms of the orientation of the book or the sort of sort of core focus of the book and really, for me, I, I want to ask you about the broader view of it. Like, how do you characterize or sort of classify this book? I had a real hard time when I was reading. I mean, it has biographical elements, of course. It's also a literary history. It is theoretical in its own way. It's autobiographical. Like, how do you? How would you characterize a book? I, I, I was like, I could come up with a characterization, but let me ask you, since I have you here on uh, Zencaster. <laughs> oh, John, it defies classification. 
Um, I think that as I was, I I wasn't thinking about a category mm-hmm. when I wrote it. Um, but I thought about what would be required to tell a story of a black woman scholar who came of age in the sixties and seventies and entered, you know, became prominent in the academy in the eighties and nineties. And I knew that I would need um, the historical context. I knew that I would need the literary analysis. I knew that I would need the narration of time and place, the ability to paint a picture and to situate readers, Mm -hmm. um, to give them a scene so that they can see and hopefully feel what the experience might have been for her. Mm -hmm. Um, I included the autobiographical elements because it was really important for me that we didn't just read McKay's experience and imagine that what she had done, what she had fought for as a scholar, as a mentor, um, that those things were behind us, that we are facing Mm -hmm. so many of the same challenges that she faced and that there's still work to be done. And so I needed to figure out a way to bring McKay's story into the present Mm -hmm. and to give readers a reason for it to matter now. And so in thinking about all of, and thinking about my goal with the book, um, I just, in all honesty, I just did, I didn't know, I can't say often enough that I didn't know what I was doing. So I did what I thought was necessary. Mm -hmm. And fortunately I had, um, I had an editor at, Um, UNC Press, Lucas Church, who really believed in the project and who told the board that this book needs to be in the hands of every Black woman in the academy. And he saw its potential before I did. And so he gave me the freedom to experiment and to play around with how I was going to include the memoir, where I was going to put it, um, how I was going to balance um, the historical details with the critical analysis. So, I, I mean, I I have to, I have to really thank the folks who allowed me to who allowed me to learn by doing Mm -hmm. Um, because I think there's a lot of pressure if you're on the tenure track to have a book that can be classified by the department that's tenuring you. Um, And so, you know, this is a book that I wrote after I had earned tenure. So I didn't have those same pressures. So I was really free in a lot of ways to write a book that was, for me and for other black women who I knew um, who I knew this story would resonate with. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's I, <clears throat> that's so nice to hear about editor. You know, an <laughs> editor who who empowers through opening up, right? Yeah. Possibility and 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 making sure that that those possibilities stay open. You know, I think there's. You know, just, I mean, it's part of just professional complaining and banter. You know, we complain about referees and editors and, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, it's, it's always nice to hear. Uh, And I've always had really great experiences with editors, but this is a level where the editor needed to be a certain kind of person and a certain kind of editor for this book to, to work. I uh, love that. And also, you know, hearing you talk, but also having read the book and thinking about this question, it does strike me as an area studies book, mm-hmm. you know, in that way that mm-hmm. like, what is a black studies book? Yes. You know, yes. I think is always yes. a question for me as someone in the field. I don't think I write particularly black studies books, right? It's something I want to do, but it's mm-hmm. hard to do. Mm-hmm. And this is a book that actually s- stuck out for me as this is the kind of book that can be written when area studies are valued and yeah. embraced. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate that because, um, you know, when I talked about bringing to bear whatever knowledge or expertise I have, um, you know, that foundation is in Black studies. Um, mm-hmm. As I mentioned, my MA is in Afro-American studies. Um, but McKay came of age in the profession at a time when the belief was, even by those who studied African-American literature, even by those, um, not everyone, but I'll say by McKay, who um, was in Afro-Am, but also had an appointment, had a joint appointment in English. She wanted us to have PhDs in a discipline. Mm. And so there was still this hierarchy that existed about... um, you know, if once you go on the market, what's going to be most legible? What's going to be able to land you a job? And um, having the PhD in English versus African American studies was the way that we were mentored. But I will say that um, I've always thought about um, even my work, even when I was teaching in an English department, I'm 100% in AFAM now. But even when I was teaching in an English department, there was never a time that I could divorce the literature that we studied from the context, from mm-hmm. artistic production at the time, if, if, if and when applicable, from the music of the era, that I was always thinking through the matrix of Black studies and the yeah. interdisciplinary grounding that I got. I mean, I don't think I fully appreciated, and I thank you for talking about area studies. I don't think I fully appreciated appreciated the way that that's informed my work as a scholar, but also as a teacher. So um, being able to see multiple facets at once um, was really crucial. Um, and, and I like the idea of, um, of an area studies book. There was actually someone in English who asked me, um, how, how'd they let you do this? <laughs> Yeah. When, you know, yeah, he, yeah, he said, yeah. how did they let you do that? And I just, I just didn't know any better. So I was, um, I was really fortunate. Um, and I have to say that I was, we talked a little earlier and, you know, you mentioned this as a love letter and I was really writing from my heart. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that a lot of the, I made a lot of intuitive choices 
So I, I don't want to discount the role of um, intuition mm-hmm. and what I felt to be appropriate or inappropriate at a given moment, um, the role that that played in the way that, um, that I pulled it all together. Well, I think if if intuition and love are ways of organizing materials, uh, we will be writing good books. I yeah. mean, those are those are virtues, right? And they they come out in the book. And um, and I, I, and you know, like I said, it struck me as an area studies book, and a thing that I think uh, we often don't talk about in area studies or in in, in black studies which is the liberation of the voice that is mm-hmm. really a part of the tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you just think about some foundational texts like like Souls of Black Folk, I mean, mm-hmm. there's no bigger cornerstone text than that. And that book is all over the place in terms of voice. And yeah. it's exactly its brilliance. And I, it's interesting to me to, to think about my own writing, but also stuff I read, you know, how, you know, how you see those moments in different ways uh, across the tradition and across, you know, the area study scholarship. But I, I think in some ways the liberated voice is something that's still sort of waiting to fully blossom. And yeah. I just love that about the book. And, you know, it's, um, it made me just think like how many more books like this do we need? We need a lot. Right. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, but I, I, and I'll have to say that, you know, when I think about, the liberated voice, um, probably one of the earliest models for me um, is Hurston and thinking about Janie and her journey. Um, and I mentioned Janie in the book. I mentioned Hurston in the book. And, um, you know, liberating your voice, the experiences that may prompt us to call into question the value of what we have to say of our insights. Um, and that it's a practice when Mm. you assert and when you claim a right to your voice. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate that, that idea of, um, of a writer also, and as scholars to think of ourselves also as writers, um, And, and bringing the two together in a way where there is creativity and artistry in the way that we articulate our ideas. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny you say that. I've, I've experimented just with my own psyche in not saying I'm a scholar, but I'm a writer. And yeah. there's something kind of scary about writer because it does suggest that intimacy, but there's also like it's, I mean, for me, it's, it's alluring. It's like, oh, this is actually what we're supposed to be able to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think area studies uh, opens that up. And, you know, I, I think it would make it a really interesting project to sort of construct a syllabus of exemplary, like, like l- not liberated voice. That's just a little more normative maybe than I would put it in that formal context, but of like this multivocal, you know, yeah. like, like you're saying, Janie, um, you know, Faces at the Bottom of the Well is a book I always talk about as sort of exemplary black studies book because it's science fiction and mm-hmm. sociology mm-hmm. and law mm-hmm. and personal narrative. And I put this book on there, on this, this list and really in its best ways. So, oh, uh, you. you know, you've, you know, you've, you've charted us a path. Are we brave enough to write in this voice is going to be oh. this question. <laughs> the, let me ask you about a couple of terms that uh, stood out, or you know, four terms, but start with these two uh, that stood out for me. Um, 
the first two is a pairing, and they're from the scenes, the sort of interludes, um, which are fantastic parts of the book. Uh, memory and invention. With memory, which you draw uh, from uh, Toni Morrison's essay, The Side of Memory. And then you also use this 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 term invention. I was interested in, in what drew you to memory and invention, because I think they really they function as a theoretical dimension, but also an organizing principle and evocation and, you know, all these sorts of, you know, you know, you know, associated synonyms, but memory and invention. So what drew you to them and, and how do you think they function in the book? Yeah. I think that when I imagine the history of black self writing, that it combines this sort of, reflective practice that draws on memory with the impetus to invent a life or to document this um, credible life, I think is the way that Joycelyn Moody talks about it in probably her first chapter of um, this collection that she has on Black uh, self-writing. And so it's important to me that I honor the fallibility of um, memory and that I acknowledge its slipperiness and offer a meta commentary, if you will, on how one remembers whether there are very specific details about an incident or it could be something that is held within the body if there's a sensation mm-hmm. that's attached to a moment where the details get fuzzy, but what you remember is the feeling and then trying to document and articulate the feeling. But also the process of selection because it's the stringing together of particular memories with this driving intention toward inventing a life that coheres perhaps around a particular set of themes Uh um, where those two ideas come together. Mm -hmm. So um, memory, I would say, is the artifact and invention, perhaps the architecture, if you will. Oh. Um, so that's how, I, you know, that's how I see them coming together. Um, because I was kind of constantly wrestling with my memory, but also in interpreting and reading and, um, working with the oral histories of folks that I had interviewed, you know, their memories of particular mm-hmm. incidents, trying to triangulate when I could. Um, to have a memory. And if there's a piece of writing associated, is there someone else who was there to provide insight? Is there a letter um, that was written um, a short time after that can give us Uh a more, um, um, can give us feedback that's in the moment Mm -hmm. and doesn't have that lag time associated with memory. So, yeah, so those are, you know, that's the way that I'm thinking about the relationship between those two. Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. I, uh, uh, in my head, I've written down uh, artifact and architecture. I, I love that, a way of thinking about the relationship between uh, memory and invention. 
Great. No, it absolutely gets gets at it. I mean, it's both how it functions in in the text, but also in your own thinking, which mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. I was like, I should write that down. I'm like, no, we're recording this. I can always <laughs> listen again. And I will, I will, I will cite. I promise. Let me ask you about two other terms. Uh, these and these are terms I have to say, just personally. You know, we all you know open up books and i think most of us read the acknowledgements first mm-hmm. and then um then look at the table of contents and you use the 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 two terms uh from the scenes rootedness and home and these are mm-hmm. two terms that I, I write about and think about all all mm-hmm. of the time so i was really drawn to them and obviously they're 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 in the the table of content titles so uh, important to you i wanted to ask um you know what what role that those notions of rootedness and home, because especially when you're talking about, you know, half in shadow and rootedness and home is really interesting, both tension and complement to the title. But I'll just ask you, I mean, this open question about rootedness and home in the book. Yeah. I think that, you know, there is a genealogical thrust in the book. So I open up by talking about my family, by talking about family reunion, be talking ab- by talking about my relationship with elders and ancestors. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at this from a familial angle. Mm. And, you know, the closeness of my family, our um, commitment to gathering together on a regular basis, basis to share space, to recognize one another, to be with one another, to break bread and to find out what's new above and beyond whatever we may find out on Facebook or Instagram or what have you, Mm. that there's a way that coming home is part of the process of remaining rooted. And so I found that the idea of home, of homegoing, of homecoming, um, would all be important metaphors, ways of thinking about the Mm -hmm. book, ways of thinking about my relationship to the source material, kind of coming home to this story. Um, But then at the same time, mapping out my place in this intellectual genealogy Mm -hmm. where McKay is at the root. and we can, I, I can take that even deeper, um, but I think that from an institutional intellectual standpoint, she was just the source of so much for me. And yeah. so I wanted to be able to place myself in relation to her that way because there are branches and there are leaves and there's more and it continues on and it grows yeah. and it flourishes and it continues. And so I didn't want to have the sense of finality with the end of the book, mm-hmm. but instead that there is an interconnectedness between those of us who find ourselves linked together by nature of our relationship to individuals to the McKays of the world and or to their intellectual production. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that's why I, um, I think you see those, those terms repeating themselves in the book. Um, 
directly and uh, thematically because they were an important part of how I was able to situate myself in relation to while also anticipating that there will be voices um, in future generations that build upon and extend um, what Nellie did for me, you know, her Mm -hmm. contributions and then my contributions as well. Yeah, because when I saw those terms and and, read the book and especially now hearing you talk, I mean, one of the things that, that came to mind and this this connects with some of your initial comments is you know one of the moments that I study and teach and write about as a scholar is this mid-century Caribbean literature moment and you know George Lamming in his critical essays talks about you know what his work in writing you know Castle My Skin and other novels is creating an audience but what I liked about these notions of rootedness and home in the book and then uh, hearing you talk about it now is how that adds this extra existential dimension. It's not just creating an audience, it's actually laying roots and creating a home space in which, you know, you as a scholar, as a student, but also then as a scholar, have roots in a home mm-hmm. in the thing that, that you know, and what could initially be creating an audience through, you know, the Norton Anthology, through mentorship. But that creating an audience is also creating an atmosphere that mm-hmm. has roots, that has a sense of home. You know, I think, um, you know, as you talk about creating an audience, um, I think that, you know, the image of the tree, that idea of rootedness, I, there was something inside me that knew that the audience was there, mm-hmm. but that... I don't know, maybe this was something for that audience to be mapped onto, to identify their relationship with. Um, Because I didn't know, there was no way for me to know where I existed in my family tree except through um, a narrative of some mm-hmm. point of, of some sort, right? Um, the stories within my family and, or the way that it was documented on the page when I would take a look and see, you know, um, who I was descended from and, you know, then my children marking a new trajectory. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, there was I always had a sense that the audience existed. Um, and as you talk, I think that the idea of rootedness in home, um, those ideas might be a way for the audience that this book speaks to, to see themselves working within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think what do you think it says about our profession? And we can think about literary studies or even black studies, right? African American studies, that this book had to be written. You know, I mean it's it's as you say, it's a you know, labor love, memoir, love letter, all of those dimensions which are really important. But of course what you know, a major impulse in the book is that this is a story 
that's been forgotten if it was ever even remembered, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that way is like the professional half in shadow. You know, she's not totally yeah. in shadow. She's on the Norton anthology, but I think you know, you know, Nellie McKay's name before the book and after the book are gonna be heard differently, right? Yeah, and that's that's why I hope everybody reads this book because we need to hear that name and know what the book says. But what do you think it says about about our field? Uh, whether you want to think about literature or even just African-American studies, that um, McKay had been forgotten. Not forgotten, but but needed this book. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think that there are lots of books or lots of people, lots of Black women scholars who need their books, um, who, who need some version of this. And so I see this working i see this as a part of a broader movement among black feminist scholars especially to write the life stories of subjects uh who like mckay may have been overlooked or whose stories have not been told completely because i just think that you know if you take a look at the rise of um the rise in number of biographies of um, black feminist biographies, biographies mm-hmm. written by black mm-hmm. women, by and about black women. I mean, it's this explosion. It's yeah. incredible, really. And I think that black studies did this. It did it because we were trained in these disciplinary and interdisciplinary modalities that prepared us to undertake the research. So we had the methodology in place. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we... Um, once we were in a position to do the work, we had the kind of vision, um, a way of reading for the gaps and paying attention to mm. the individuals and the voices and the subjects who, through no fault of their own, had been marginalized, mm. had been overlooked, um, and that we center in a particular mm. way. Mm. And so I, I see... Black studies as laying the disciplinary foundation, um, thinking about the role of relevancy in Black studies, and how there's a sense that this work needs to serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the proliferation of these biographies about Black women is testament to the fact that, um, you know, Nellie's life, McKay's life is one of, um, of many books that are pushing against, um, you know, when Hortense Spillers talks about, you know, um, being prone to, to forgetfulness, Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to thinking about the work of black women, um, in the academy, that we want to work against that forgetfulness. And mm-hmm. so the books themselves are, um, you know, they take up space, literal space, um, in the archive, on the bookshelves, um, mm-hmm. but also they take up intellectual space. And so um, I see the foundation of Black Studies at the same time I see those who were taught by Black Studies practitioners Mm -hmm. um, looking to new ways 
to um, investigate the lives and life stories of um, of Black folk. And how do you think uh, African American intellectual history, literary study looks differently after this book? I mean, you mentioned those others, and I, I think you know, you know, just to to pick one, you know, that 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 you know, biographical work on Hansberry, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. think you can't read Baldwin the same, for example. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, as well as putting Hansberry much more at the center of certain things. You know, so I think, you know, this, as you say, it takes up space in multiple ways, right, on the shelf and in, in our own understanding of intellectual history. How do you think this the McKay – changes some of the ways we see intellectual history? You know, that's a, it's a hard question for me to answer. And I kind of, there's a part of me that feels like it's in some ways up to those who read the book and experience the book and situate the book in relation to their own work mm-hmm. to um, assess how it, changes the scope or shifts the focus or, you know, moves the terrain in, in one way or another. Um, I can say, I, I can talk about how it's shifted. I'm more confident talking about what it has shifted for me in terms of, um, how I think about my scholarship and my contributions mm-hmm. um, and the fact that I'm beginning to see or to, I'm much more attuned to how we understand larger forces through the lives of individuals. And that's not yeah. new. That's, that's not, you know, that's not a, a wholly new approach. I mean, any biography is going to have, um, you have the life story, but you have that life story situated alongside a political movement, an aesthetic movement, any number of things that you learn while you're reading a biography. Um, but I would say that in terms of an approach to my uh, scholarship and my teaching, I think that um, what I mentioned about the individual, um, the self in relation to community is Mm -hmm. something that I'm really thinking much more about Um, and empowering my students to express themselves creatively through their projects and their work with my class. I can definitely see um, my work with Half and Shadow changing the way I see students being able to find their voice Mm -hmm. and find the ideal expressive mode for that voice Mm -hmm. in my classes that I don't have to limit it. And I think there are plenty of people not limiting it to papers and such, but that's really what, um, what half and shadow has shifted for me. Yeah. I love that. That's great. I'm glad I asked. I, you know, also, you know, what it, what it mean, what it meant to be an editor, you know, of important things. I, I just, we talk about that so much in terms of, you know, tenure and promotion mm-hmm. review. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm like militant about if you edit a book, we got to value that as like three quarters of an authored book because it's that amount of work. Yeah. But I, I 
one thing I thought reading reading this, you know, one of the things I thought reading Half in Shadow was, you know, do we appreciate editors of things that make a field in some ways? You know, I'm not sure. Work. Yeah, I'm not sure we appreciate editors, and I'm not sure we appreciate essay writers. That, that is th- absolutely for sure. I think that we still fetishize the book. Absolutely. And so um, part of what I learned is that it's like spillers, Hortense spillers, the essays. I mean, uh, mama's baby, papa's maybe. Can you imagine? There's just no imagining the work without it to me. And so... um, to imagine her as an essayist, to imagine McKay as an essayist, mm-hmm. I think um, is really important because it acknowledges that there is not one mode of production for a scholar that you work within um, your wheelhouse. Your, yeah. you know, what's your sp- what's your sweet spot as yeah. a scholar? And everybody's got one, but we, I, I think we talk much more of homogenizing and, you know, kind of fitting in and for yeah. underrepresented scholars who are looking to do um, field forming work, but still earn tenure in what are perhaps conservative departments. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of negotiating. There's a lot of kind of figuring out, well, how am I going to do this? Absolutely. Um, but, but I definitely um, have a new appreciation for the value of um, those who contributed those field forming articles and essays. Mm-hmm. Um, McKay's essay on the, on the teaching of African-American literature in PMLA, the guest column that she published, um, which said a lot about the role of white scholars doing African-American literature. And um, I think that the questions that she posed then, um, as I mentioned earlier, so much of what I learned is relevant today. And so I think that it's important not to read past certain critical questions just because they happened decades ago. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well, let me ask, ask, and this is maybe a a twist on that question uh, about what you want readers, how you want readers to walk away from your book. And I say walk away because, and I say this in all these podcasts, um, you know, I don't like takeaway. A takeaway is too possessive for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I like walk away. You know, the the way our sensibilities and movement and through the world are can be changed by books. And of course, every reader. I mean, it's act part of the act of reading. You know, you take you know, readers take from it what they want yeah. uh, uh, in some ways. But we also imagine like w- how we want the reader's sensibilities to be changed and shifted in our writing. And I wondered, you know, how do you want readers to walk away from this book in terms of their sensibility and movement in the world, whether it's the world of ideas or profession or just relating to all these things you've talked about, you know, rootedness, home, memory, invention. Yeah. um, I think 
if I'm answering honestly, it's a piece of what you mentioned a little earlier in your question, which has to do with what readers bring Mm -hmm. to any text, um, because it's going to resonate with readers differently um, based upon where they are in their lives, um, what they know about what they know about McKay, what they knew about her previously, their mm-hmm. familiarity with the field, like you know, any number of questions. Um, but I think that I would want to ask for an opportunity to have those original experiences reimagined through rereading. I would say that what I would want most, you know, from with readers is an, not just an opportunity to be reread, but I would want them to finish the book feeling like I want to experience that again. Hmm. Or I want to give that another pass. It could be a section. It could be any piece that really resonated with them. Um, So maybe perhaps the feeling, Mm -hmm. um, the enjoyment, the joy. But also, um, I would say the information, uh, perhaps a new context for understanding where we are now. I just find that there's a lot that gets taken for granted when it comes to Black studies, Black literary studies. If we, if we take a look at what's going on in Florida, I mean, I was driving and thinking about this and asking myself, I don't have the answer to this, but asking myself when um, when was the first year that there was an AP in African American studies? Like I'm, you know, I'm I'm sort of thinking back, like, okay, when did that get put on the books? How long has that been in existence? Who made that happen? Um, whose scholarship or work kind of spurred on? a desire um, to have African-American studies represented um, in high schools Mm -hmm. to be an opportunity to be um, taught for advanced placement. Mm -hmm. So I just started to think about that thread and the battles around access to what's taught. who's teaching it, like those battles persist. Mm -hmm. And I think that the work that McKay and others put into establishing Black literary studies, Black feminist thought, when folks believe that it didn't exist or it held no value, I want there to be a reminder of that value, at the same time, there is a roadmap for the process that one would need to undertake to make sure that we are not on a path to it becoming devalued, yeah. that that we have to remain vigilant. I guess vigilance mm-hmm. is sort of what I'm talking myself into, mm-hmm. like what, 
the sort of takeaway that I would want from my readers. Um, yes, that enjoyment, but yes, something to say, you know what, if I'm paying attention to what's happening now, then I need to remember that this was all a very fragile and risky undertaking. And it requires care Mm -hmm. and attention um, to remain in existence. And that we all need to do our part to make sure that it remains embedded as an educational imperative. I love that. That's, that's, that's wonderful. Um, And, you know, as you say, you know, that, that reminder that these, these are paths that we work, we work, work through and walk on generationally. Uh, I think that's enormously important. Let me flip that question to you, you know, how the reader walks away, but how do you as an author walk away from this? And and I mean that in in the full sense, right? Not just, uh, you know, what's next, although that's always interesting. I I always hate that because I don't want to be like, you know, just bask in the book's glory, right? You don't have to talk about next project, but maybe next project. But also, you know, especially given how, um, both historically important this book is in terms of understanding intellectual history mm-hmm. around black women's literary study and production, as well as the field of African-American studies and just, you know, American uh, intellectual inquiry, but also that's, that's the big picture, but also mm-hmm. all the intimate uh, relationships that you have to the project. How do you walk away from this book differently? Yeah. Um, I think if you had asked me as soon as it came out, <laughs> I walked away from it exhausted. I was tired. Um, that's legit. That's, that's a real. So thing. straight up, I yeah, it was it was a lot. Um, now, when I think about how I walk away, the first word that comes to mind is uh, grateful. Really, mm-hmm. um, that I had the opportunity to do this work. And the freedom to write the book according to my vision. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots and lots of gratitude um, for the project itself. Also, for, um, you know, not for nothing, as a confidence building exercise, you don't think about it when, when you start, but. I was asking myself throughout, am I going to be able to do this? I don't, you know, there was a lot of, there were lots and lots of moments of self-doubt. But on the other end, I know now that, um, yeah, I mean, I did it. So Mm -hmm. there's a sense of the accomplishment, but also a different kind of belief in my ability to imagine a project, not having to know all of its contours from the outset, but to trust my ability to respond in the moment with the process and to, and and when I do that, to be guided to a positive outcome that I will Mm -hmm. end up, you know, in a good place. Uh So I think that there are, there's that. Um, 
in terms of what's next for me, yeah, before it would have been murky, but I've had I've had time to think, which is really nice. So I'm so I'm really <laughs> God, I'm so glad that we're doing this now because the distance, you know, I've had a chance to exhale. Um, that really, really helps. But my next project is on hospitality traditions in African American culture. Hmm. And um I I bake. I throw parties. I love getting people together. And so at coming out of COVID, I was noticing the way that the folks in my social circle, the Black folks in my social circle, were looking to come together to um, enjoy one another's company. And just this sort of... Uh, the kinds of rituals that black folks use to ignite connection or to reignite connection. Uh Um, That's sort of where it started, but then I started um, doing some reading around the history, um, this, the secret history of home economics. Um, Hmm. And I start, and I was turned on to that book because I started doing some digging with a B. Smith. I love B. Smith, have always loved B. Smith. <laughs> Back in the day, they talked about B. Smith as the Black Martha Stewart, which is a problem for a lot of reasons. Um, but on one episode of the Today Show, I remember them asking, you know, well, B, what's the difference between you and Martha? And B let them know. She said, well, where Martha is about perfection, I'm about passion. Huh, and nice. so- so I'm right now I'm interested in looking at black joy through hospitality um, and through the life of B. Smith. I don't know where this is going to take me, but um, for right now I am um, looking to teach a class on black hospitality mm-hmm. and to think about um, these long-standing traditions, not when black folks are cooking or coordinating for white people, mm-hmm. but what happens um, within our own communities of care, what happens with our civic and social organizations, the way that we structure those kinds of um, events and comings and uh, opportunities to come together. So that's where I'm going right now. I feel like I'm, I'm after looking at McKay's life um, and her scholarship that I'm interested in. B, but I, but I want to. I feel like I feel the need to party. So maybe maybe <laughs> that's in part what's um what's what's driving my interest right now. So um yeah, but that's where I'm headed. So no pressure, but uh you gotta hurry up and write that. I think that's I mean, I can't wait to read what what comes of that, whether it's essay or book form or even just talk form. Um but also that's really important stuff. I, I, I really I love that project. And I loved Half in Shadow. I and um, this conversation made me love the book even more. I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate your, you know, your detail and honesty and insights in this this process and and documenting this life and its meaning. So thank you so much for your time and for this extremely interesting conversation. I appreciate it a lot. 
Oh, thank you, John. I've had a ball. All right. So take care. You too. Have a good rest of the day.